You're listening to Houston. We have a podcast where we talk everything and anything, movies and their reviews, and this is episode six. Hey everybody, show here. Welcome to Houston. We have a podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. Houston We Have a Podcast is produced every two weeks for your enjoyment, and show notes can be found at houstonwehaveapodcast.libsyn, which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite feed or on iTunes, and you can follow me on Twitter at S-N-S-A-L-L-I, that's S-N-S Alley. But enough of that, to start things off, let's check out what's going on in the movie world this week. Before we get to the movie news, first, apologies that the podcast has not been up for about a month. Circumstances in life have gotten incredibly busy, which is just nuts. I got a small promotion at work. You know, I'm in the process of buying a place, paying off my car. So I kind of need the extra dough that a promotion, i.e. extra shifts bring. It's great. I love my job, actually. And sometimes I can't believe I get paid to do what I do. But, you know, it does mean that you're working more, so... Sorry for not having the podcast up, but we will continue to do it every two weeks. There are a lot of great movies on the horizon, and we're going to talk some TIFF in this episode and in the next few going forward. So there's a lot of stuff to tackle, and even when we don't have stuff to tackle, we're going to do some more outside-the-box things, maybe some recaps, some discussions on other actors, bring in some friends of mine for some roundtables. They're really keen to do that, so there's a lot of stuff on the horizon, but definitely getting back to the two-a-month once every two weeks schedule going forward. But, you know, time for some news. For real now. Once killed three men in a bar. A pencil. I know, I've heard the story. With a fucking pencil? Who the fuck can do that? As you might have guessed, that clip has to do with John Wick. Now, John Wick Chapter 2 came out last year, and it was a great movie, very entertaining, very violent, and we talked a little bit about this on the on the podcast, about the John Wick movies in general, and as you could guess, if you saw Chapter 2, that there is going to be a sequel. Now, today, it was announced that the sequel's release date has been set for May 17th, 2019. So, that seems a little far away, but, you know, given the other movies that the directors have made, Atomic Blonde, for one, which you covered on this podcast, it's not exactly out of the ordinary for a movie like that to be given a release date so far in advance. It does sound like this is going to be one of those highly anticipated movies. John Wick, the first, I suppose, or chapter one, whatever you want to call it. I think it's just John Wick, really. But the first one was not one of those movies that had a lot of success in the theater, but it clearly caught on quickly online, kind of like the Judge Dredd movie with Carl Urban. So it it kind of attained cult status, and a lot of people have now seen it, especially when it went to Netflix Chapter 2 was much more of a commercial success. I think it's easily one of Keanu Reeves' most popular movies in years. Not hard to see why. It's very action-packed. They have this great kind of undercurrent of lore that you kind of chip away at as as a viewer, as an audience member. You kind of slowly get to be let in on this concept, which is really cool, I think. It's a, it's a very interesting movie, a very interesting universe they, they have built. And so Chapter 3, May 17th, 2019, highly anticipated, at least by me, and I hope you all watch it. If we're still doing the podcast by then, we definitely will be, spoiler alert, but we will definitely be covering that movie on the pod, but well in the future, so, you know, mark it on your calendars now. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. Okay, I know. This one is not exactly news. It was announced 
or at least the news broke, and there was no official announcement. But this kind of came out onto the internet, into social media, about a month ago, a little more than a month ago. And I would be remiss as a self-professed Star Wars nerd, as someone who has gone to Star Wars Celebration multiple times, I would be remiss in not mentioning this on the podcast. So, as you heard from the clip, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the standalone movie has not been officially confirmed, but it seems rumors are coming out about it. Stephen Daldry, who directed The Hours and also Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, is rumored to direct. The big question mark is, will Ewan McGregor return? Obviously, there will be no Alec Guinness. But this is news that Star Wars fans, including myself, have been waiting for for a long time. A lot of people feel that the Han Solo movie, which is coming out next year, is something that we didn't really need and or want. And now, I feel you, maybe an Obi-Wan Kenobi movie is not exactly something that we need or want either, but I think a main part of it is that people really want to see Ewan McGregor return to the role. Hello there. Of all the things come out of the Star Wars prequels, and I know public opinion seems to be coming around slowly in the prequels, I am still of the opinion that they're not the worst movies ever made, but they're also not that great. They're pretty thoroughly mediocre, and I think they got better... Well, no, I was going to say they got better as each one came out, but Attack of the Clones is quite honestly the worst one. The Phantom Menace is so much better than Attack of the Clones. But, like I said, everyone wants to see Ewan McGregor return to this role. He was fantastic in it. He was probably the best part of the prequels, you know, so it'll be interesting to see if he does actually return... If this movie is officially announced, and I'm sure if slash when it is, the internet will explode. It's a thing that people have been clamoring for for such a long time. And even when I went to Star Wars Celebration this past year in April, it was something that people expected to be announced at the convention. And, you know, of all the places you would think that that would be a place to announce such a movie. They didn't announce that. They didn't announce anything about the Han Solo movie. It was all The Last Jedi, which admittedly is understandable. It's going to be the biggest movie ever in the history of movies, probably, and it's coming out this year. So, you know, I get it. But the same, so as such, the the, the news of this, these rumors breaking was actually a pretty big deal because that's the first we've ever heard anything about it. So since this news broke, which admittedly was about a month ago, nothing more has come out, but I had to mention it. Obi-Wan Kenobi, he's awesome. I really hope this movie gets made. I really, really do. This holiday season, I think I'm going to beat you in this contest. Winning is everything. You use every trick you've got up your sleeve. But sometimes, it's supposed to be a celebration of Christmas. You just can't beat falling in love. Well, as you all know, Christmas is around the corner. No, not really even a little bit. It's not even October yet. We haven't even gotten to Halloween yet. Halloween hasn't even... It's still over a month away, which means that Thanksgiving hasn't come yet. Halloween has not come yet. American Thanksgiving hasn't come yet. There's so many other holidays that we have to get through before Christmas. And I understand it's a very big commercial thing now. And it's kind of crazy because complaining about Christmas being so far away has almost become a thing, quote unquote, in and of itself, which is also kind of crazy to me. And I don't mean to get on that bandwagon. I really don't. But the reason I mentioned this is because, as you heard from the clip, there are a lot of movies that will be coming out. It's probably starting now for Christmas that are Christmas themed, I should say. And one of the companies that really gets on that bandwagon is Hallmark. So that commercial you heard was a Hallmark commercial for a movie. I think they came out last year or the year before. I don't know. Who cares? There's, there's a million of those Hallmark movies. And it brought to my attention that there was a list written back in June of, of this year, 2017, that Hallmark is coming out of, with 32 new films. And it was announced today that they upped that number to 33. So... It got me thinking, you know, I would love to read 
maybe some synopses of these movies. And I, I managed to actually find a few in this Entertainment Weekly article written by Dan Snyerson. And it's... It's wonderful. I'm gonna I'm gonna read some of the some of the synopses uh, synopses I should say to you guys. And this this is one of my favorite things. I love doing this. Okay, so here's one. This one is called "Kiss for the New Year." That first kiss of the new year is special. It's supposed to signify that special person with whom we'll spend the next year and possibly forever. So it's wise not to squander those affections. When everyone else just puckers up to the nearest set of lips, Robin has always kept her wits and her mouth to herself. An established photographer at a lifestyle website, she's assigned to work on a New Year Eve story with a new hire, Todd. When she confides in Todd that she has never kissed anyone as a clock strikes midnight, he sets about to correct this by finding someone for Robin to kiss at the magic hour. His theory is a kiss is just a kiss, and she should enjoy the moment. Ultimately, they are both right. Oh, who could have guessed? Todd finds a man for her to smooch, and Robin does find the right man. And guess who fits the bill? Oh my God! I can't believe that. This, do, do people actually? So, like, someone must be sitting at a studio somewhere, and 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 they're writing this and like, yeah, yeah, this is gold, gold. That's gold, Jerry. Gold. <laughs> yeah, there you go. He knows. See, that guy knows what he's talking about. Okay, here's another one. It's called Never Too Late for Christmas. Rebecca, a businesswoman who has let go of her joy of Christmas, is trying to secure her next big deal and promotion to executive vice president before the end of the year. When she's sent on assignment to a remote town, she meets this handsome widower, John, owner of the Holly and Ivy Inn, which is named after his two daughters. It's not long before Rebecca's all-business exterior begins to thaw and she finds her Christmas spirit returning just in time. I mean... I don't know about that one. That one, who who's getting promoted to executive vice president and also being sent on assignment to a remote town? Admittedly, I don't know what she's a businesswoman for, but that one just seems kind of silly, you know. Uh, for those who are fans of the TV show When Calls the Heart, they're actually making a, a I guess another Christmas movie. I don't know. I, I suppose they have multiple ones. I see, this article seems to imply that there are there are more than one. I'm not going to read that one, but there there is a a When Calls the Heart Christmas. I think that's what it's called. It's just called When Calls the Heart Christmas with an exclamation mark. So you know, be sure to read it appropriately. Here, I'll be, last one, and then we'll then we'll get on to some movies. This one is called Magical Christmas Ornaments. A book editor, Marie has always adored Christmas, but that love faded when her marriage ended on Christmas Eve four years ago. To rekindle Marie's love of the season, her mom sends a family Christmas ornament every day. Marie decorates her tree and feels her spirits lift with each ornament. Though she's still limiting her seasonal festivities, Marie reads to children at a hospital where she meets an attractive nurse, Nate. Marie is delighted when she gets to work with her favorite author on her new children's book. She also happily organizes a book drive with Nate. Maybe mom's ornaments are magical after all. But Marie jeopardizes her job when she refuses to edit her ex-husband's book and starts to feel rather negative again until her mom reminds her that the magic isn't inside the ornaments, but inside her. How awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. That's gold, Jerry. Gold! Yeah, there you go. Anyways, those are some of the Hallmark Christmas movies, 33 of them. You know, maybe, you know what, maybe if, if, uh, I guess by the time I do the next episode, we won't have, none of these movies will have come out, so maybe I'll read some more. I only read three today, and there's 33 of them, in case you didn't hear that part. So, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll pick this up next week. Let's, let's, how about that? Good compromise. I do, I do really enjoy reading these. Okay, now let's talk some actual movies. So the movies we're going to be talking about in the podcast today 
Uh, one is a very scary one, and one is well. I guess the other one. I guess you could cons- you could consider it to be scary. I suppose if you're of a certain faith. But, anyways, the two movies we're talking about today: it the reboot slash reimagining of Stephen King's movie, and of course there was that famous made-for-TV miniseries kind of movie-ish with Tim Curry that was made in 1990. Crazy to think that movie was made the year I was born, but they're remaking it now. Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise the Dancing Clown. And our other movie is actually the first TIFF movie I've managed to see this year. It's called Disobedience, starring Rachel Weisz, Rachel McAdams. You know, it's a, it has not been picked up by a distributor just yet, but we'll get, we'll get to all that in a minute. So for now, let's start things off with this summer's scariest movie, It. You know, that music just kind of seems a little too happy, you know... It is the kind of is the movie that I I feel like introduced clowns or the idea of scary clowns I should say into into the pop culture lexicon. So maybe that's a maybe that's a too much of a, a genuine carnival of music. Let's play a different one actually. Let's play a different intro. Yeah, that's more like it. Yeah, Creepster Central. That one actually is written by Lucas King. It's called The Wrong Circus. I think it's actually an original piece. I I thought I should credit him for that one because, you know, I found it on YouTube and it's a pretty cool song. But, okay, let's talk the movie itself. It, you know, it's a fantastic movie. And I guess I should start off, before I go, go any further, let me say this. I'm a big fat scary cat, okay? I am. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hide it. I spent the most of this movie. I went to go see it with a friend of mine, and the two of us spent most of this movie with our hands over our eyes. Or, you know, over our mouths or with like a jacket over ourselves. I don't know. It was and I kind of felt silly until I looked around the theater and like ninety percent of the other people in this theater were doing the exact same thing. So I felt not bad at all, which actually feels kind of empowering to be able to talk about it because that movie scared the crap out of me. And I know I've read some online reviews before I before I were recording this episode, and uh, a lot of the reviews seem to be saying, oh, well, you know, it wasn't that scary. What the hell? Screw you guys. This movie this movie scared the pants off me. And, you know, it all starts with Bill Skarsgård. I mentioned him in the intro. He's the one who plays Pennywise himself, who plays quote-unquote It, right? And he is easily, to me, the standout in this movie. And I know people want to give it to Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things. He plays the foul-mouthed Richie. And, you know, he has some amazing lines. There's some really good... Some really good burns. He's like the tough guy, motor mouth, tough guy of the group. But to me, it's it's Bill Skarsgård, mainly partially because I'm not a huge fan of child actors, but mainly, really, because Skarsgård does a lot of the acting in this movie with just his face. And there's a lot of, I assume there's a lot of CGI work going on here as well. But so much of the acting that Bill Skarsgård does in this movie is done with his facial expressions. And it's amazing. It's so impressive that he manages to turn this idea of a clown into something so terrifying. And I know, part of the idea of it, especially because it's a reboot slash reimagining of the novel, you already kind of know in the pop culture kind of world that this clown is, you know, scary. The cl- A clown is expected to be scary, so you know there's going to be a scene with a clown in the sewer, you know there's going to be a bunch of jump scares, you know this, you know X, Y, and Z, right? So I think that's, it's fair to say that 
you kind of have this preconceived notion that the clown is going to be scary. But even so, even knowing that, when you see Bill Skarsgård on the screen for the first time, it's scary. It is unnerving. And it's it's all because of his acting. So I'll give you an example. We meet Skarsgård as it, and I'll just refer to him as it uh, for the rest of the this review. But we meet him when he kills a member pretty much right at the beginning of the movie. He kills one of the a young child. And I don't think it's a spoiler because that it happens in the first five minutes and it sets the tone for the rest of the movie. And I won't say how it happens because holy crap, that, that, that really was one of the parts that really made it scary going forward. And there's a moment where he, he, he's talking to this young boy and he's in the sewer and this boy is t- talking to him and it's, it's really creepy and he's trying to lull this boy into a false sense of security. And I guess I should mention, for those who don't know, it, the creature, this kind of eldritch horror demon, you know, it. the way it functions is that it preys on your fear. It preys on a person's fear, and it likes to go after children specifically because a child's fear is more easily realized than an adult's fear. So a child's fear might be of clowns, whereas an adult's fear might be of its his, your, your crippling debt, right? How, do you, how, how does he uh, how does he freak you out if that's your fear? It appears as a giant phone a phone bill. I don't I don't know, right? So that's the kind of I guess aim of it is to prey on your fear. And I believe in the book. There's a few point of view chapters in the novel uh, from it, and I believe you learn, you the reader, learn that it likes to scare people because it's kind of like salting the meat. It makes you more delicious when he eats you, right? So you don't, of course, learn about that in the movie, but clearly it, it preys on fear. It's all about creating fear. So to go back to this young child, he he's trying to lure him into a false sense of security, and he kind of talks about how there's a, a carnival down in the sewer. And this kid is, what, eight, what, eight years old? So, you know, he doesn't know any better. And he makes this kind of pop, 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 pop uh, kind of impression when he's talking about popcorn going off in the popcorn machine. And he makes this child laugh. And this child, Georgie, he laughs. And it's an, it's an expression of pure joy by this child. And it, via Bill Skarsgård, his face just shuts down. It just shuts right down. It just goes dead. He One moment, he has this huge, friendly smile on his face like you would expect from a clown that entertains children, and it just shuts down. His eyes are just dead. Like, he doesn't know how to comprehend or understand this emotion of joy, because I suppose joy is the opposite of fear, I guess, if you want to go that way. And it is the creepiest damn thing I have ever seen. Like, that creeped me the hell out. That was one of the scenes I think that actually stayed with me, more than some of the other really gory scenes, but that one really creeped me out. And you know what? The movie does have a bunch of jump scares. It does. It's a horror movie. It's going to have those things. And, you know, there's that scene with Georgie at the very beginning of the movie. There's a scene, actually, it's in the trailer, and so I don't mind mentioning this. All the kids get together, and they're on this projector, and they're kind of looking through the projector. And, and as you see in the trailer, the projector starts to go a bit of a haywire, you know? It starts to just flip. The slides start to go flipping, flipping, without anyone doing anything. And then you see the image on the slide, and, you know, it's it's a picture of this boy and his family. And then all of a sudden, the mom, she kind of disappears from the from the slides as it's going and going and going. And then all of a sudden, it's replaced by it, and he freaks out. He's he's snarling and his sharp teeth and he's like yelling at these kids and then and then they kick the projector over and he's gone he's gone and you're like oh thank god thank thank god it's it is gone and then and then all of a sudden the projector starts to go again and again and again and there's no slides slides have all fallen out of the projector so it's just it's just kind of it's just kind of registering it's just kind of going and 
it's just a light on the screen, just a, a, a light shining on this wall of this garage. And all of a sudden, it is there, and he reaches out, and oh my gosh, I nearly peed my pants. Honest to God, I did. It was really scary. Uh, there's another scene with um, Beverly, who is the only girl of the Losers Club, as they call themselves. Uh, there's a scene with her father that's also very well done towards the end of the movie. But, you know, it has a lot of very well done, creepy, for lack of a better term, scenes, very tense scenes. Uh, there's one in the library where there's a there's a librarian kind of standing out of focus in the background. And she is creepily staring at the camera but you can't really see i mean maybe she's not actually staring at the camera maybe she's staring at the main character who's in the foreground and she's in the out of focus background but she's just while all the other people are in the library doing stuff they're reading or whatever she's just standing there so creepily just standing there and then you see a balloon which is like which i guess if you follow any of the marketing for this movie the balloon the red balloon is i guess one of the major i guess calling cards of this of the creature at least from a visual perspective and you see a balloon just kind of float through the library and only this child can see it. And you're like, oh my God, that is, that is terrifying. It's, it's really well done. And there's another, there's another one where another main character, one of the other members of the Losers Club goes into a basement. He sees an apparition of his brother. And it, there's so many great scenes. And, and again, it ties back to Bill Skarsgård because I think a large part of it is that it's almost like, because this, because it is a creature not of our world. It's almost, it's so well done because it's almost like it is trying to imitate a human, like a clown, for example, without actually knowing how a clown acts or moves or behaves, right? And other than the the, the basic premise that a clown is silly and makes people laugh, right? And I think of one thing that actually plays into this is that Bill Skarsgård is Swedish, and he's not afraid to let part of his Swedish accent slip into his English, which is great because, and of course, he speaks English flawlessly, but because his cadence sometimes is perhaps not something you, as a as a North American viewer, I assume, I'm North American, I'm Canadian, but as a Canadian, for example, then, it's not how necessarily we would necessarily talk, you know? Um, Americans, I can only assume it's the same way. Some of the pronunciations of certain words are a little off, and I, for such a large budget movie, you can only assume they would have corrected that if they wanted to. Uh, and I'm, and like I said, I've seen slash heard Bill Skarsgård in other productions, and he speaks English perfectly because he's amazing, right? But they left it in this movie, and it, it really adds to the kind of almost unexpected alien touch of this character, and it's really creepy, honestly. I I will say this though, the movie is not perfect. Certainly not perfect. One major flaw of the movie is pacing, I would say. Nothing really happens for the first little while of the movie while we, the audience, see each character meet it for the first time. So basically the premise is that each child is by himself, him or herself. They all have their own creepy, scary encounter with this entity. Not necessarily as a clown, but in different forms, right? They all take It takes different forms for each one of them. And... You as the audience member know what it is, but they haven't necessarily met each other yet. And of course, circumstances convene and they become as such that all the children meet each other. They become friends. They create this losers club, uh, Beverly included, who's the only girl, like I mentioned. And then finally, once they meet each other, they have that garage scene I mentioned that was in the trailer. And then the plot kind of starts to move forward, finally. Because other up until that point, it's just... We, the viewer, going from place to place to place to place that's not really connected in any way, and then we just get the pants scared off of us, And as are these children, and then finally they realize what's going on, and then we kind of move forward. 
the result of this, though, is that by the end of the movie, because there are so many scary parts in this movie, you're almost worn out at the end because you're expecting something scary to happen. I mean, you also know that you're going to see a horror movie. You know they're going to be scary, gross, creepy, terrifying parts. But by the time you get to the end where they're really saving some of the really creepy stuff, it's not scary anymore. It's kind of weird. And maybe they did this on purpose because towards the end, they really start to fly through the action. We get to the sewers and they meet Ed and this guy gets possessed and all this crazy shit. And none of it is very is particularly scary anymore. And I guess a, the, a thing that kind of goes hand in hand with that is the movie goes on and on about how the children, if they're alone, they can be picked off one by one. It can isolate them. They can focus on their specific fears. But if they stick together, they can survive and will be okay. And that's a large part of the novel, too, is the, you know, the power of friendship, the power of teamwork, the power of a bond that brings you all together, right? So they have this triumphant speech that one of the main characters gives. Uh, and what do they immediately do? What is the first thing that these children do is they split up. I don't understand. I mean, I know it's almost horror movie convention, but the the main character gives this amazing speech outside of the house with a culminating moment re, uh, regarding sticking together and the very first thing is he takes off after the next apparition of it and i swear to god everyone in the theater groaned everyone did or you know slapped their forehead and 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 kind of like oh my goodness what's going on here right so that i think it, those are the two main flaws i think and I mean, they're 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 pretty nitpicky. I will admit that much, but I don't know. It's just some kind. Sometimes it's just kind of it, it gets a little tiresome. But they do do- delve into a little bit of the Stephen King lore. We see the deadlights very briefly. For those who know what that is, I won't spoil it because I think it's pretty cool. You can also Google it, I suppose, if you are not super interested in being in being spoiled or not. It's just a part of the Stephen King lore. I mentioned this in the Dark Tower review, but a lot of the a lot of the Stephen King novels are kind of related in this kind of macro universe, I suppose. It's almost like a shared universe before shared universes were a thing. But all the all of the Stephen King novels that like Carrie and The Shining and blah, 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 they all take place in one, I guess, shared universe over many years. Anyway, so it, it, I guess on, the, on that note, it's kind of funny that this movie came out now while The Dark Tower, which we did review, just sucked, you know? It, it, it was horrible. And this is this is the adaptation of a novel that The Dark Tower should have been. I don't mean in terms of style or whatever, but clearly the director cared about this movie. And and I, I'm not saying that the director of The Dark Tower movie did not care, but the difference in quality between these two movies is staggering. It is absolutely staggering. It shocks me, shocks me when I see the difference in these two movies. And I don't know, we could have had an amazing Dark Tower slash Stephen King universe. And we just kind of, I feel like we got a little bit of short, a bit, a bit shortchanged, honestly. Anyways, last thing on It, the movie kind of ends by saying It Chapter 1. And I feel like it was kind of ruined by the announcement in, you know, in the quote-unquote real world that It Chapter 2 had gotten a 2019 release. And I mean, I don't know, maybe I suppose the fact that it's based on a very popular book kind of removes the whole idea of spoilers considering the book came out in 1986. But still, right, for people who are not super familiar, haven't read the book, haven't seen the Tim Curry adaptation in 1990. I don't know. Seems kind of seems kind of silly. Although I guess people in the audience were like, oh my gosh, they're making another one. But the way the movie ends, it's pretty obvious they are making another one regardless, even they didn't even if they didn't put chapter one in there. And you know, speaking of the book, they clearly changed the time periods to coincide with the modern era. The original eras in the book were 1958 when they're children and then 1985 when they come back as adults. And they, they make a point in this movie to say that it's 
hibernates almost for 27, 27 to 30 years apart. So, you know, 1958 to 1985, that's 27 years. In this movie, in the movie of today, it takes place in the summer of 1989. So 27 years later would, of course, be 2016, 2017. And they kind of go out of their way to talk about how it's not exactly 27 years. So, you know, by the time the movie comes out, it'll be 30 years. So who cares, right? The, they'll, they'll, they can just, like, update them. And here we go. It is, it is back. It's eating people. So it'll be interesting to see who they cast as the, the new updated versions of the Losers. I, for one, vote for Rachel McAdams as Beverly. She, the the young actress who they cast to play her, who is pretty damn talented, by the way. Uh, she's a dead ringer for a young Rachel McAdams, I think, at least. I mean, maybe I'm just biased. You can't. I, mean, I guess suppose you can't typecast Rachel McAdams into every redheaded role that exists, but she's a great actress. And maybe I also have Rachel McAdams on the mind. She's in Disobedience, which is our next movie of the podcast. But that's for the next segment. So I will end this segment by saying it is really scary. You know, it does drag at parts, but... If you're going into it, you just want to see a good horror movie, you want to be scared and laugh about it afterwards, it is a movie for you. It's a lot of fun. I think it's already the largest horror release opening in the history of movies, which is crazy to me. Um, But you know what? It's worth it. It was a lot of fun to be scared. Me and my friend, we laughed about it a lot afterwards. So I definitely recommend it if you're into horror movies for sure. Okay, so up next is Disobedience starring Rachel McAdams, Rachel Weisz. Alessandro Nivola. I really hope I said his name right. He's fantastic. We'll talk a little bit about all of them together. But, you know, in a nutshell, it's kind of a movie about Orthodox Judaism and being an outsider within your own family. Very interesting movie. A lot of topics to touch on. So without further ado, Disobedience. Disobedience is actually the first TIFF movie I managed to see this year. So if you haven't heard or if you're not familiar very briefly tiff t-i-f-f stands for the toronto international film festival i live in toronto i'm born and raised in toronto tiff has been around my whole life it's it's a lot of fun a lot of great movies premiere here every year and i guess the festival like other festivals like sundance and Cannes and whatnot you know the these movies are brought to the festival not just a screen for people like me and not just for the critics but also so that these movies can be picked up by distributors and you know, sold and shown in theaters for everyone, right? So Disobedience, I think, had four screenings this year, and people got to see it, but I think amongst all four of those screenings, I would probably guess that, what, 4,000 people went to see this movie? 4,000 people in the whole world? So if they want a a movie that premieres at TIFF to kind of get better press, you know, they have the stars come out and promote it, they do pressers, they have parties and stuff, so a lot of schmoozing goes on, people are buying these movies, blah, 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 so that's what TIFF is about, right? I mean, but for me, I should say that's what TIFF is about for actors and filmmakers. For me, it's about seeing quality movies and taking chances on movies I maybe would not have otherwise seen, so... For me, this year, Disobedience was the first one I managed to go see. I had to give away my tickets to The Carter Effect and Battle of the Sexes, unfortunately. Uh, those movies looked really great, and I'm sure that I'm, I'm going to go see them when they release a little more widely as well. So, you know, just see them, seeing them a little later as opposed to now. But this one was the major one to start with. A little heavy, I'll say that. You know, it's a very serious topic. As There are some laughs in it, for sure. And it's still a really good movie. I would say it helped that I went to see it with a really awesome woman who is funny, smart, beautiful, etc., you know, I really hope she's listening, but uh, <laughs> I doubt it. But, you know, Disobedience is a really awesome movie. And like I said in the intro, it tackles a lot of interesting topics. So to start, Rachel Weiss, Rachel McAdams, Alessandro Nivola, they're the film stars. If I had to pick a standout, though, 
it would probably be Nivola, actually. And and I should say, first off the bat, that that is not in any way, shape, or form to downplay what Vice and McAdams do, because they're awesome, as they always are. It's a frank look, this movie is, into the lives of these two women and how they both have become something that they did not want, you know, in different ways, in different circumstances. In a nutshell, the movie is basically about how Rachel Weisz's character, Ronit, uh, she's a daughter of, I guess, the community's most respected rabbi in London, England. And she kind of, I guess, unexpectedly and suddenly leaves and goes off to New York to kind of pursue her career as a photographer, which she's really good at. You know, but she leaves all her family and friends behind in London in the process. And the film starts, we see a speech by her father, and then the father dies in the first about five minutes. And the the entire movie is about how her his estranged daughter, I suppose, Rachel Weiss, comes back to London and is now treated as an outsider by the family. And how life has changed while she's been away and how, how she copes with it, how her friends, who are Rachel McAdams and Alessandra Nivola, how they cope with it, right? So it's very interesting. So that's what the movie is about. But in terms of Rachel McAdams and Rachel Weiss, I kind of liken me picking Nivola over them to the problem that in sports that superstars have. And I know sports, not really related, but you know, I work in that industry in the sports media field. And I, I, I have, I've done a pretty good job of not mentioning this on the podcast so far, but I think this is a great analogy. So in sports, right, we see seasons that players like Tom Brady and LeBron James have. And now we see what they do and we shrug and now we look to someone else, despite the fact that what they do consistently and how they're doing it, it is incredible, right? I mean, if you really go with the MVP of the league every year, in the NBA, for example, you pick LeBron James every year. It doesn't matter about Russell Westbrook and his a million triple doubles. You're picking LeBron James because he's LeBron James, right? And so, similarly with Rachel Weisz and Roger McAdams, I can't say I've ever seen a performance from them that is not amazing. You know, they're both such tremendous actors. Even Mean Girls, I swear to God. They're both such tremendous actors that it's almost routine what they do. And as such, we expect them to deliver awesome nuanced, breathtaking performances. And I guess the reason I picked Nivola is because he's a relative unknown, I guess, com- at least compared to the, the heavyweights of Vice and McAdams. And he probably has also, in addition to that, his part itself is one of the most difficult parts, more difficult parts, I should say, of the film itself in terms of his his character, but also one of the scenes he delivers towards the end where he delivers this very intense speech. And at Temple, he's a rabbi, his character. And it's... That I think is my favorite part of the movie. It's so it's so energetic and so pumped up. And I don't mean to sound like it's like a very rousing speech. It's not rousing like a sports movie rousing speech is, like Al Pacino, right? But it's just really intense. And that is what makes, I think, to me, him stand out. Because his character is also so quiet. He's very reserved. You know, he knows what he wants, and he he seemingly has gotten what he wants, and then it's all kind of taken away from him in a matter of, what, days? A week, maybe? And I think that's the length of time the movie takes place over. But, I don't know. It's a, it's a very interesting movie. You know, it's not necessarily your typical movie. It's basically about or- Orthodox uh, Judaism and... One of the big talking points and buzzworthy parts of this film that has been making a lot of news, perhaps sometimes for the wrong reasons, is the sex scene between Rachel Weisz and Rachel McAdams. So I guess I guess one thing I did not mention at all is that Rachel Weisz comes back home to see, you know, her father's 
funeral, I suppose, and to kind of pay her respects to her father, who she very much loved. And she wants him to make sure that, you know, people know that and that she feels that perhaps he did not know that she loved him so very much because she left so quickly. But a large part of it also, and I believe it's implied that one of the reasons she leaves is because when they were younger, Rachel Weisz and Rachel McAdams, who are best friends, they were in a relationship together, uh, like a a romantic relationship. And, you know, Rachel Weisz is away, and they had a kind of a three, a group of three, you know, it was Vice, McAdams, and Nivola, and they were all best friends. So Rachel Vice leaves, and McAdams and Nivola, they eventually get married. But it's pretty clear that McAdams is a lesbian. And they pretty much all, they don't use the L word, I suppose, but they, they pretty much straight up say that Rachel, Rachel Vice, I should say, left the city, and McAdams had nothing else to do, and they all thought she was ill. So to kind of conform, she marries... Nivola, and there are a lot of great. There are a lot of interesting scenes before the major sex scene between Vice and McAdams. But there's a there's another sex scene, very much less graphic, but between Nivola and McAdams, where you know she basically just undresses every Friday night and she kind of submits to her husband and he has sex with her, and he's really into it and she kind of fakes it and you know she kind of stares at the wall or stares at the ceiling and while making these fake noises until it's all over, and I'm sure people can relate to that, but. It's interesting because we then next the next sex scene we see is the one between Vice and McAdams. And okay, yes, it's noteworthy because it's between two major actors, two women. You know, they do some graphic stuff. They spit into each other's mouths. There we 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 just straight up see their hands down in each other's pants, you know, etc. But the passion in the scene is is I mean, it's they're acting, but it looks so real, you know? It looks like they, these women are in love with each other. They they lust for each other so a lot and it's fascinating to watch because you basically juxtapose it with the scene that we just saw with McAdams and her husband and the difference in it is so stark and a large part of that I admit is due to the acting of Rachel McAdams and she's is she's she's really good at, at it and I will I I don't know I don't want to sound like I'm gushing over this like pretty graphic sex scene because it's between two women but it, the acting is very much very very well done I will say it does feel a little male gazy you know a little bit to me and maybe it's not entirely avoidable with this kind of subject especially with the idea that's kind of ingrained in cult in the culture Western society's culture in general that you know seeing two or more women do things to each other is usually for the benefit of a man and it's usually in porn and whatnot you know like a threesome or you know whatever right and I don't know. I think that's part of the reason it's generating so much buzz, but I will say again that it's also because the kind of portrayal between these two women, you see that they've they've been here before, they've done this act before. It's not it's not unfamiliar. It's not a strange thing to them. They've clearly done this before. And years and years of not being with each other and, and we learned that Rachel McAdams has not been with a woman since since uh Rachel Vice and uh, similarly for her, she has been with only men. You know, and so it's this, it's this gigantic release. And of course, like with sex scenes in general, the climax, their, their climax, like their sexual climax is also the climax of the scene and probably the, of the of the whole movie. Right. So it's it's a very interesting scene. And of course, just outside of all the sex stuff, it's not every day you get a, you get a, a movie with two top actors portraying two Orthodox Jewish women having a graphic scene like that, like with each other, that goes on for about like what five minutes. You know, that doesn't sound like a long time, but you're sitting there in the theater just watching this kind of go on and on and on. And I know there are some people in the theater that were, you know, a little uncomfortable, which is fair. I mean, 
you know, whatever. Maybe that's a sign of today's world changing to have that kind of scene be more acceptable. You know, there was uh, the color blue. The, the warmest color is blue, I think. You know, then there was The Handmaiden. Those are some movies that came out of a few last year, year before, etc. Uh, maybe it's a huge risk, you know? And like, like I said before, last I checked, Disobedience had not yet been bought um, since it premiered here. It had not been picked up for distribution. Uh, but you know what? It raised some interesting ideas, interesting ideas of being an outsider, an idea, the idea that a woman gives things up when she takes her husband's last name, you know, some very pertinent ideas in today's culture. The idea of having children, you know, these are all ideas I've spoken with with my own partner in the past. Um, so, you know, it's clearly stuff that's relevant to women of today. And as a male, maybe it, it, it means something different to me than it does to a woman. And I talked about... I talked about those issues with my date a little bit afterwards, and she also kind of expressed the same thing, you know? So uh, it's a very fascinating movie. I will say this, though. I, as I was watching the movie, it occurred to me that I did not know a lot about Judaism in general. And admittedly, these were Orthodox Jew, Jewish people, so not necessarily the most common parts of the faith when compared to your, I guess, average Jewish person. And similarly, my family is Muslim, and they're certainly not the most religious people, strictly religious people in the whole world compared to other Muslims in the world and even here in Canada. But it was very interesting to watch and it made me actually want to go learn some more about the faith in general, which was a fascinating look into something that I had not known about, right? And I think that's part of what movies are about. When you get right down to it, you want to, for some people, it's about an escape. You want to just turn your brain off for a few hours and sit there in the dark and pretend the outside world doesn't exist. I get that. I totally get that. And there are movies I love doing that with. But I think a large part of it, too, for me, or at least another part of it, is that I want to learn something. I want to learn something maybe, maybe about myself. I want to learn something about a viewpoint maybe that I had not considered before. I want to learn something about the about the environment maybe. I want to learn something about this or that. And I think disobedience gr provided a great look into a world, that of Judaism, that I had not known before. So that's kind of cool. And I'm actually looking forward to seeing this movie does get picked up. The performances themselves are incredible. Rachel Weisz, Rachel McAdams, like I said, Alessandro Nivola. They're all so, so, so good. It's a fantastic movie. It, I, I will say it's not for everyone. Certainly not. You know, um, if you're a Trump supporter, you might not like this movie so much. But, uh, you know, politics aside, it's fantastic to watch. The performances are just next level. And, you know, even just taking the whole buzz about the sex stuff out of the movie, which is a major part of it, I will admit. It's it's a very well shot, well directed, well acted, well written. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more about Orthodox Judaism, I suggest you watch Disobedience if slash when it does come to theater near you. It and Disobedience, those are the two movies I decided to review this week. Very different movies from one another. You know, one very creepy horror thriller, horror slash thriller, really more horror than anything else. And Disobedience, a movie about religion and belonging and family and what happens when all that stuff kind of goes awry and mixes with one another, right? Romance, of course, too. Very interesting movies, definitely. The next two movies I'm going to be talking about, they're both going to be TIFF movies. And I'm seeing one tomorrow and I'm seeing one the day after. So we might actually get a pretty quick next episode of Houston We Have a Podcast, episode 7. Because, you know, I'm going to see these movies in the next two days. I want to record them while the viewing is still fresh. And I saw It in Disobedience over the last few days as well. So we're going to record it. I'm not going to wait the two weeks to publish the review or publish the episode, I should say. Because, you know, they're interesting. And I want, I want to hear what you guys think of these movies uh, based on what I have to say about them. 
The Mountain Between Us is the first one I'm seeing tomorrow. It's it's classed as a kind of disaster romance movie, I think I saw on the TIFF website. It's between Idris Elba and Kate Winslet. From what I understand, this movie is about the two of them. They're I think they're passengers on a plane who don't know each other. The plane crashes in a mountain range in somewhere in the United States or somewhere in the world. And they're the only two survivors or they're the only, you know, they're together or whatever. And it's about how they rely on each other to survive. But all, and, you know, while they do that, they kind of a budding romance is started between them. Right. So that's kind of interesting. And. The next one is called Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I'm going to be seeing that with one of my friends from, from university from, or from college, I should say. And Three Billboards is basically about, with, it stars Francis McDormand from fame, Fargo fame and many other things as well. But it's basically about, you know, the police station in Ebbing, Missouri, in the town in which this movie takes place. They refuse to do anything about a certain person's death. And the mother of this person... This is, uh, decides to take matters into her own hands and puts up these three billboards outside the city limits to kind of pressure people into doing something about it. Uh, so th- those movies sound very fascinating. I, I admit I don't get to see these kind of movies very often. Uh, as you guys probably have guessed, I like to see movies like Atomic Blonde and Wonder Woman and Transformers and Cars and et cetera like that, right? So it's it's a nice change of pace to be able to see the drama movies, which I do like. It's just they don't come out that often, especially here in Toronto in a in a timely fashion or they do come in a limited release and I don't have time to go see them because they come out, you know, they, they're, they're not, they don't go with my schedule. Let's say I work really weird hours in terms of days and nights. And I'm recording this at 2 AM on a Friday night because that's when I finish work. Right. So they don't always coincide in terms of my sleep schedule, but since I can actually go see these movies before I work, I'm I'm really looking forward to them. They look like a lot of fun, very interesting. I wish I had been able to go see The Carter Effect and Battle of the Sexes. But you know what? Like I said, I will go see those movies when they come out. There are some other movies I wanted to see too. Shape The Shape of Water by Guillermo del Toro. You know, there was The Disaster Artist, which I really, really wanted to go see. Those two movies I missed out on. And I'll share a quick story. The reason I missed out on those movies is because I fell asleep. The way you pick your tick, your your TIFF tickets is I bought a package this year, a 10-ticket package. So I basically bought five movies and I got two tickets each, although you could go see them. Theoretically, I could have gone to see one movie with nine other people. I could, go, I could have gone to see 10 movies by myself, you know, something like that. But I decided to get two tickets to go see five movies so I can go with a friend. And what they do is they basically email you a link and say, okay, here, this is your selection time on this date you know, at this point in the time in the day and you log on, you can, you know, it's, you go on their website. It's kind of like a Ticketmaster-esque website and you pick and choose your movies and you log out and then you can either print them or you can pick them up at the box office, whatever, right? So my time was like on a Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. and I was in the middle of working a million shifts in a row. I work a lot of weird times like 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. or 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. or, you know, and then I would work the next day like 12 a.m. or 12 p.m. to 7 p.m. So, you know, it was, it was kind of all over the place. So I had just got gotten done working like a 11 a.m., 11 p.m. to 3 a.m., then the following night, a 7 p.m. to 2 a.m., and then the following night, lunchtime to 7 p.m. And that's that day, the 7 p.m. shift, like half an hour later was the day I was going to pick my shit, my, my tickets. And I just, I, I completely forgot and I fell asleep and then I went to work the next day and I came home on the, on the Wednesday and 
all the tickets for The Shape of Water, for The Disaster Artist, for Molly's Game, another Idris Elba movie with Jessica Chastain. They were all gone. They were all gone. I was I was actually pretty peeved at myself. I have not been mad at myself like that in a long time because it was completely avoidable. I had it in my calendar. I made an alarm, and the alarm went off, and I'm kind of thinking, why the hell is my alarm going off at 7.30 p.m. on a weekday? Off bedtime. Ultimately, it was probably good that I got some sleep, but oh well. Lesson learned. Lesson learned for next year. Don't forget. Oh, well, what can you do, I suppose, right? I know I'm but myself to blame. You know, live and let live, right? That's what you got to do. In any case, that's it for me today. I hope you enjoyed listening to my long-winded takes on clowns and sex scenes. You know, not necessarily together, of course, unless that's your thing. But this has been episode six of Houston. We have a podcast. Good night. Hey, just cast a check. And I'm about to blow it all on chocolate. Yeah, I'm about to blow it all on chocolate. Sweet tooth, baby, make that dollar stretch. Chocolate. 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 Uh, I feel my sweet tooth agging up. All I need is-